Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. I'm joined today on the podcast by John Lesh, Diamond Hill's Banking Analyst. John joined Diamond Hill back in 2007 after spending time at both Nationwide Financial and UBS Financial Services. John is an Indiana Hoosier and followed up his undergraduate work by getting his MBA from the University of Notre Dame. That means that this past weekend, uh, John had a very good weekend as Indiana upset Michigan and Notre Dame upset the number one team in the country, Clemson. Today, John is joining me to discuss his most recent industry perspectives piece that tackles banking in the time of a global pandemic. As we continue to work through these unprecedented times, I ask for your understanding for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe and stay healthy. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with John Lesh. John, it's been a while since you've been on the podcast, so I wanted to welcome you back. Thanks, Doug. Appreciate it. Good to be back. Uh, you're joining us here today to talk about your most recent industry perspectives piece, wherein you discuss uh, banking during this most unusual time in our history. What led you to focus on this topic for your perspectives piece? Yeah, it's interesting in the course of your career, like random things that people say sort of stick with you, even kind of one, one, one-liners over time. And I remember during the financial crisis, uh, when it seemed like the world was ending and all the banks were on fire and it was a very scary environment. Our then CEO said something to the effect of, you know, as uncomfortable as this is to go through right now, it will pay dividends for the rest of your career. And for some reason that stuck with me as a young bank analyst and, you know, now kind of having 10 years to reflect on it. uh, I have found it to be very helpful to see how investors react, uh, especially in the banks during kind of panicky times. We've seen some other kind of smaller instances over the last 10 years. Uh, that have allowed me to kind of reinforce that belief. And then with the rapid drawdown in March, uh, particularly in the bank stocks, uh, it really kind of cemented that home for me. And then the chart that I have in my industry pod, uh, industry piece, the KBW chart, I just thought was an excellent illustration uh, of investor psychology during a crisis uh, with the bank stocks and how they value them and how they think about them and react. And it just seemed kind of like a perfect time and opportunity to, to cover that for folks. So let's let's dig into that a little bit more. Uh, you know, we'll focus on the early period of the pandemic, as you mentioned, kind of mid to, to late March is when things really started to ramp up with regards to a sell-off. How were banks positioned, and what uh, you know, if any role did some of those lessons that you were referencing that you learned in the financial crisis? How did they help those banks uh, in preparing uh, for what was going on? You know, in terms of how the banks themselves were prepared, uh, you know, coming into this crisis, you know, due to a lot of heavy lifting over the last ten years. Uh, they were all uh, way better capitalized coming into this crisis than the last crisis. So their, their balance sheets were in much better shape. The regulators had been heavily involved over the last 10 years. So there'd been much more oversight uh, on the industry. And then some of the riskiest lending, uh, which caused trouble during the last crisis, had been pushed out of the banking system uh, into the shadow banking system. So from a commercial banking standpoint, uh, it was a much healthier industry coming into this cycle. So I just think in general, they were better prepared uh, than the previous cycle, which, which gave us some comfort. So you, you referenced the current expected credit loss methodology or CECL uh, as a factor beyond the pandemic that has layered more complexity into the banking industry. Can you walk me through what 
Cecil is and, and what that impact is on the banking industry? Sure. Uh, in the interest of the listeners and not going too far down an accounting rabbit hole, uh, Cecil basically changes the timing uh, at which the banks recognize provision expense for future losses. So if you go back to the financial crisis, I actually just sort of looked this up earlier today, the elevated provision expense for losses really took kind of three to four years, uh, depending on the bank and their particular credit situation. And with Cecil, rather than being spread out over three or four years, much of that provision expense, which is how, again, how the banks experience losses through their income statement, happened pretty much in the first three quarters of 2020. Uh, so that's one big change. So it's the timing and then also kind of what drives the provision ex expense itself. So if you go back to the financial crisis and the previous methodology, much of the provision expense was driven by that bank's individual experience with their loans and whether or not they were going bad. And so if a loan was going bad, they would put up a provision expense uh, to account for the losses they were expected to take. Under Cecil, uh, in addition to having you know, some of their direct loss experience, a lot of it is model driven. So they have to look at their loan books and say, okay, over the life of the, our expected loans, you know, let's say the next three to five years, what do we expect to lose given a certain economic scenario? So Cecil introduced having to use most, I think nearly every bank uses Moody's, uh, these economic scenarios that uh, will then drive provision expense. So if you go back to, you know, the March, April timeframe, you want to, felt like the world was coming unglued. Uh, nobody really had experience with this and what sort of that economic environment might look like. And so you saw these uh, extremely draconian economic scenarios coming out from Moody's that the banks then had to use to determine their provision expense. And just as an example, uh, Sterling Financial, which we've owned uh, for some time, they used the April forecast for their Q1 earnings. Most banks use the March uh, Moody's forecast. And Sterling said just that difference of using the Moody's numbers from April versus March caused their provision expense to be 30% higher than it otherwise would have been. So using these Moody's numbers kind of pushes things all around, creates uncertainty, it was a whole new system. So it just created another layer of complexity and uncertainty uh, into the general uncertainty we had uh, during the time of the pandemic. But so I, I think the biggest takeaway though in addition to the, you know, the timing differences is that the fact that we have gotten through the first three quarters and many banks are sort of telegraphing that provision expense uh, will be going down uh, for the foreseeable future, that it highlights that for the banks, this cycle is an income statement issue rather than a balance statement one. So let me kind of dive into that a little bit. So if you go back to the financial crisis, many banks, again, weren't very well capitalized coming into the crisis, like I mentioned earlier. And so, when you had these massive losses, uh, they had capital impairments on their balance sheet. Many had to raise new capital, oftentimes at dilutive valuations, and that sort of caused the uh, negative feedback loop for a lot of the banks. Now, in this cycle, when I said it's an income statement issue, is that it impacted earnings for kind of the first one to four quarters of this year, but you know we haven't seen any major capital holes in the banks. Again, they came in much better positioned. Uh, but even if you lose money in a quarter or two, many of them will still make money for uh, 2020. So we're not seeing big holes in balance sheets. We're not seeing dilutive capital raises need to be done. So it, it just highlights what better position the banks are in this cycle versus last. And this was just 
just bad timing, right? I mean, they were going to be putting this in place, you know, as of last year, this was still going ahead this year. It just happened to coincide with the pandemic, right? Yeah, I mean, we've known this for years uh, and the banks have been telegraphing it, you know, starting last year, what they expected, you know, you had to make a, they call it a day one adjustment uh, as of January 1. And so we knew sort of all that stuff coming into this year. And then you have this total wild card out of left field uh, of the pandemic and sort of what that caused, you know, an unusual situation to be even more unusual. So following on that, the pandemic has impacted all areas of life. And, and one area of specific concern that you mentioned in your piece is the network of branches throughout the country, the physical presence through which these entities can reach their clients. And the, the pandemic and subsequent lockdown has changed how consumers interact with their banks, which was already happening, but I think it's almost now more being forced upon consumers. And you know, specifically, I'm thinking of my mom finally coming around to the idea that she doesn't need to balance her checkbook every month. She can look online and see where everything is. How will this impact the banking industry going forward and the idea of having a wide ranging network of branches? Yes, I mean, technology, I mean, like any industry, technology is a hot topic, right? It feels like every industry is being disrupted at this point. Uh, you know, the stat that often gets thrown around is, you know, JP Morgan spends north of $10 billion a year on technology. How are these smaller banks going to compete? So technology has been a hot topic for the last few years in terms of uh, what's going on with banks, particularly smaller banks. But to your point, you know, this kind of work from home, everybody being locked down and still needing to, like you said, manage your personal finances, whether you're, you know, a personal client or a commercial client, you know, it really highlighted the need of technology in the industry and having good solutions for your customers. So whether, you know, it's uh, on the consumer side, like you said, and be able to you know, handle stuff on your phone or take pictures of checks that you need to deposit, um, you know, that reduces the instance of you need to go to the branch or, you know, same thing on the commercial side, being able to handle things digitally or scan documents or digitally sign things. You know, all these things were sort of happening, but you did have, you know, kind of a cohort of clients on both the commercial and uh, consumer side who, you know, were holdouts for lack of a better reason mm -hmm. uh, or better explanation to this technology. And so, you know, a lot of banks have said that this pushed a lot of those people kind of over the hump in terms of adopting technology. So, you know, they've thrown out, you know, this pulled forward kind of three to four years of adoption in terms of customers using technology. So this has given them the opportunity to reevaluate, okay, what does our go forward branch network need to be uh, given the technology, uh, technology tools we have available to us. And we're seeing announcement after announcement of banks that are reducing their branch footprint, you know, 10, 15, 20% uh, in the next year or two, because they don't need that much retail, you know, space anymore. So uh, it's going to help them to, you know, save costs. I mean, obviously running branches uh, cost money. Uh, somewhat offsetting that is the fact that some of that money will be redeployed into technology solutions that uh, will need to be out there now to support customers when they don't have branches. So uh, I'm sure some of that will fall to the bottom line when you have revenue pressures, uh, everybody's looking to save on expenses. So it will uh, help on the expense side. Um, but some of that will also be redeployed into new te technology tools going forward. So let's get into some specifics. You reference four different firms that you believe uh, are well positioned to benefit from the changes that we've experienced, as well as some of the changes that are still to come. What is it about First Republic, SVB Financial Group, Live Oak Bank, and Bank OZK uh, that you believe separates them from the rest of the crowd? Yeah, so those four names in particular, you know, thinking through, okay, 
we're in a period of crisis. Many things are very uncertain. You know, I try to think about who are the banking franchises with experienced management teams, differentiated franchises that uh, can come out of this stronger. Uh, you know, come into it in a strong position, but exit even stronger than they were in the beginning. And these four kind of immediately came to mind. And you know, First Republic has been a long time holding uh, in multiple Diamond Hill strategies. And you know, why they come out stronger uh, in this situation is their service-focused culture. Uh, I mean, everything that they do is focused on the client experience and making it excellent. And it shows up in the numbers, whether it's net promoter scores that are you know, multiples better than the banking industry as a whole, or customer attrition numbers that are a fraction of what they are for the industry. I think you know, First Republic, I think, puts out that they lose kind of 2% of their clients on average through attrition versus the banking industry, I think, is eight. So I mean, absolute fraction of the banking industry. Their customer de demographic of kind of urban, coastal, wealthy uh, clients, oftentimes, you know, they're kind of professional folks that you know, their, their lifestyles and businesses have been less dis disrupted by uh, the pandemic. And then lastly, uh, pristine credit. They, First Republic has a 30 plus year track record of absolutely pristine credit. And I would expect them to have the same through this cycle and outperform the industry. So that's why I think they should outperform. You know, earlier I mentioned uh, on the technology discussion that it seems like every industry is under assault from technology. Well, SVB uh, has been serving the innovation economy for the last 30 years. And with all the industries being disrupted, it is the SVB clients that are doing the disrupting. So whether it is startup technology and life sciences companies that they're banking or the venture capital firms, uh, they have the clients that are doing this disrupting and they have a growth profile that is tremendous compared to the banking industry at this point. And then most importantly, uh, because of that and their client network, they have a network effect unlike anything else I've seen in banking. Oftentimes, if you look at kind of a plain vanilla community bank, you know, that's become very commoditized where the only thing you have to offer is, you know, what are you gonna charge me on my loans and when are you gonna pay me on deposits? That's pretty commoditized. Well, SVB has developed relationships over the last 30 years with you know, the leading venture capital and private equity firms, uh, not only in the United States, but increasingly around the world. And they also bank all the startups. So you have the great network effect of the venture capital firms that want to bank with SVB because they have the startups and the startups that want to bank with SVB because they have venture capital firms uh, and other capital providers. So closest thing to a network effect that I've seen in banking. And if I'm going to bet on anything over the next you know, 15 to 20 years, I'm happy to bet on innovation. Moving on to Live Oak, uh, they're a digitally native small business bank uh, based in Wilmington, North Carolina, relatively newer investment in the Diamond Hill strategies uh, made late in 2019. They're the largest SBA lender in the country. And you know, their kind of competitive advantage became very apparent uh, coming in out of the crisis through the PPP program, which are the Paycheck Protection Loans, which I'm sure many of our readers have seen kind of mainstream news headlines about. And so because they are the largest SBA lender, and they have a great technology platform that they run the bank on, they were sort of able to outpunch their other banks, you know, five to six times their size in terms of issuing uh, PPP loans, not only to their existing customer base, which will help protect, you know, their credit profile, uh, but also to new customers that they can bring to the bank and then hopefully, you know, grow in the years ahead. 
So not only that, they uh, are very involved in investing in next generation technology for the banking industry as a whole uh, and have seeded several investments that we think are pretty exciting. Uh, and they also have a demonstrated track record of generating uh, interesting businesses. So before they went public, uh, they had spun out a, building, a business called Encino, uh, which went public uh, over the summer. And Encino is now a $6 billion plus market cap company. And again, that came out of Live Oak's kind of incubation. So they have a track record of doing that. And they have several, several other interesting kind of irons in the fire that we think can generate value over time. And then lastly, uh, Bank OZK, they have an expertise in difficult to underwrite construction financing and a demonstrated track record of excellent credit quality and value creation. You know, if you were to look at the banking industry going back over the last 20 or 30 years, it's hard to find a bank that has compounded tangible book value uh, at a higher rate than Bank OZK has over the last 20 or 30 years. And they came into this with an absolute fortress balance sheet uh, and would be able to take market share as other players exit uh, construction financing and are kind of hiding under their desk, too afraid to make loans. You know, they have a war chest of capital that they can use to generate new loans and gain market share. Well, John, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch a little bit and get personal with you. At the time of this recording, Indiana's football program moved to 3-0 after snapping their 24-game losing streak to the Michigan Wolverines, while at the same time, Notre Dame just knocked off the number one team in the country, Clemson. Uh, knowing that you've spent time at both of those institutions, on the off chance that they somehow were to meet in the college football playoffs, where do your allegiances lie? I would have to go Notre Dame. Uh, all three of my brothers also went to Notre Dame. So I've been a Notre Dame football fan uh, since I was a little kid. And I was one of those people that was Notre Dame football and IU basketball. So I would have to take Notre Dame. And the game on Saturday versus Clemson was awesome. And I was sort of laughing to myself. I think that was later than I've stayed up over the last five years on New Year's Eve. So I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what that says about my social life, but uh, the game was very exciting. Definitely without a doubt. Indiana game was was great as well. But, uh, but John Lesh, banking analyst, Diamond Hill, uh, I want to thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. The insights are great. Uh, your industry perspectives is available on our website at www.diamond-hill.com. Uh, and I just want to thank you again uh, for taking some time to talk with me. No problem. Thanks, Doug. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.